welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Grabeck. And this week, we are discussing not a novel, but a short story. It is time to dip back into the Listerdale Mystery Collection. And today's offering is Mr. Eastwood's Adventure. Catherine Brobeck, tell us a little bit about the publication history on this one. Well, it was first published as The Mystery of the Second Cucumber in the novel magazine in August 1924. I'm not sure that we've seen that magazine before. No, I don't think so. Um, And then in the Listerdale Mystery Collection, of course, in June 1934. And then it was published in 1948 in the U.S. in The Witness for the Prosecution and Other Stories, which, if you recall, uh, not only does that include the titular story... It also includes Accident, Philomel College, and Sing a Song of Sixpence. So really, that collection was a better bet of Listerdale mystery stories than the Golden Ball. Interesting. So that should speak well for this story, as opposed to some of the other Listerdale mystery stories we've covered recently. There's less uh, fruit sold by the side of the road in this one. <laughs> there is significantly less fruit adventure in this story. But honestly, there is some vegetable adventure, so mm-hmm. that is I suppose true. that's a step up. So uh, tell us a little bit about the victim. All right. Well, as we are in the Listerdale Mystery Collection and not doing a straightforward puzzle mystery, it really depends on how you look at it. We have two potential victims. The first is Carmen a mysterious mm-hmm. young Spanish woman who accidentally calls Mr. Anthony Eastwood and begs for his help, mistaking him for her old friend Conrad Fleckman. Or is it a mistake at all? Or is it just fate, kismet? Mm. We don't know yet, but we will find out. Second victim is Mr. Anthony Eastwood himself, a mystery novelist with a bout of writer's block and an apparent inability to see danger and perhaps an ancestor of... Go ahead. Make my day. Clint Eastwood. You know, it's always possible. (laughs) Anything's possible in the Listerdale Mystery Collection. Anything is possible. Tell us about our suspects, Catherine. Well, we basically just seem to have the police um, who are the villains here because they're coming to arrest Conrad Fleckman or Carmen, perhaps, for a murder most foul that he did not commit, at least according to Carmen. All right, I suppose we should talk about the world as it appears to be. Mr. Anthony Eastwood is a mystery writer, but of the sort that sells trashy tales like The Mystery of the Second Cucumber to magazines. And uh, that is, in fact, the title of the story that he is working on when we (laughs) open this story. Right. This seems to be Agatha Christie poking a little fun at herself as a writer, as Mm -hmm. she tends to do. It reminded me a little bit of um, Louisa May Alcott also wrote these sort of lurid tales of intrigue and murder and made money off of them. He, unfortunately, does not seem to be doing as well as Louisa May Alcott. He seems to be making less money every year. And he currently has a bad case of writer's block because that title, The Mystery of the Second Cucumber, which is a legitimately funny title for a mystery, it did make me uh, giggle. I mean, I liked the idea, well... What's the mystery of the first cucumber? <laughs> <laughs> well, and he even said in the, st- in the story, he's musing about right. what a quote unquote good title he is. And he's like, oh, this is going to hook readers. I mean, cucumber, what, that, that's crazy. And what about the first cucumber? How yeah. is the second right. cucumber? <laughs> Unfortunately, the plot is just not uh, chugging along as it usually does. 
I have to say that the beginning of the story I find to be charming because he spends a lot of time struggling with names. He thinks up various elements and how he might tie them together in an actual plot. His mind wanders. He feels like he's failed. He dreams up another plot that involves a much more romantic intrigue, but he gives up on it because his knows, he knows his editor would be angry. And it just all <laughs> felt very much like a musing of Agatha that was like very endearing and descriptive, I think. Very similar to her Ariadne Oliver send-ups that we've seen and and that we will continue to see in in the books. So the phone rings, he answers it, and it's a frantic girl with an exotic accent named Carmen who begs him to come to their rendezvous because she desperately needs his help. And Anthony is kind of like, wait, what, huh? I think you might have the wrong number, but she just continues on frantically and she begs him to come to number 320 Kirk Street and to use the secret word... Wait for it. Cucumber. (gasps) Cucumber. (laughs) That might have been where the story lost me a little bit, which is also a very much an Agatha Christie thriller trick slash trope where there's just an unbelievable out of the blue coincidence such as this. And we just have to swallow it. He does hang a lantern on it, so to speak, because he says, well, that can't possibly. I must have misheard. That can't be what she said. Like, I just heard her say cucumber because I have cucumbers on the brain. Right. So, I mean, this story is noting the absurdity. This is true. So he basically sits on this for a while before deciding, what the hell? And What has he got to lose? Right. Goes to Kirk Street, which is a long road of antique stores and glass shops and other stores that sell baubles. And number 320 is an antiques glass store, and Anthony is immediately confronted by the proprietor and feeling super awkward and cornered and, uh, you know, been there too, my friend. Yeah, uh, I, found, I found that really, <laughs> really relatable too. I've been hoodwinked into a few ill-advised sales that way. Correct. And so he, he lets her give him basically a grand tour of glassware before finally deciding on a set of liqueur glasses. And it's only when she's ringing him up that he finally is like, well, what? I'm never going to see her again anyway. And he blurts out cucumber and she looks at him (laughs) with this level of disgust. You just wasted all of my time for glassware when that's what you're here for. And so she's very annoyed and she sends him upstairs. So he meets Carmen who is beautiful and exotic looking. Such a girl. She really had the ivory pallor that Anthony had so often written about. And her eyes, such eyes. She was not English. That could be seen at a glance. She had a foreign exotic quality, which showed itself even in the the costly simplicity of her dress. He's very taken with her, and she throws her arms around him and kisses him. Then she kisses him again. And... He's like, ah, I'm not who you think I am. Although there's a lot of kissing that happens until he a makes lot that of clear. Kissing. Like a surprisingly, a surprisingly large amount of kissing. And it kind of makes him seem a little bit like a pervert. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of a gray area. We came across this issue in the case of the city clerk, our most recent Parker Pine, when, remember, there's a little bit of hanky-panky happening, extramarital hanky-panky, but it's innocent. And I think even though this is technically deceit on his Mm -hmm. part involving physical intimacy, we're not supposed to be creeped out by it, even though we as 21st century readers might be. I mean, he also does have the line when she finally realizes that he's not who she thinks he is. He says, oh, that's all right. 
the early Christians made a practice of that sort of thing. Jolly sensible. That is the only <laughs> thing I underlined in this entire story, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the only lines I underlined because I was like, wow. Wow. Mr. Uh, Eastwood, wow. Yeah. This is Christy at her fun, flirty best. Or worst. (laughs) We don't know what Mr. Eastwood looks like, I'm afraid. Although we get the sense he's very handsome because she mentions that too. Because she's a little confused when she sees him. Because she's like, oh, you don't look the way I remember you looking. You're you're ten times handsomer. Right, right. You are not Jack Summers, so why do you keep going on pretending that you are? How do you know I'm not? I know because... How do you know? I know because I never loved him the way that I loved him. They're doing all this canoodling, and he seems to be about to work himself up to that point, and he just hasn't made a very good go at being truthful with her about his identity. Right. He's kind of trying, but at the same time, she wants to keep kissing him. Yeah. So, yeah, the police come in, and they charge Conrad Fleckman, i.e. Anthony, with the murder of Anna Rosenberg. And that's when Anthony finally says, no, 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 there's a mix-up. I am not Conrad Fleckman. I'm just kind of accidentally here. And that's when Carmen is like, oh, no. (laughs) But it doesn't convince Scotland Yard. And so they haul him away anyway, but not before he steals those other kisses from Carmen. Right. And that's when he tells her, listen, I'm not who you think I am. This really is all mix up. But... I had a great time kissing you, and I hope you had a great time kissing me, and I hope we'll meet again. And she's kind of perturbed by all of this, but seems to indicate that she does have feelings for him, perhaps the real him, and that will become significant later on as well. Right. So... On the street, Mr. Anthony Eastman convinces the two Scotland Yard officials, Detective Inspector Verrall and Detective Sergeant Carter, that they should come to his flat for evidence that he is who he says he is. Carter is suspicious, but Verrall seems entranced by the fact that Anthony is a mystery writer. He's just much more game. We've got a kind of good cop, bad cop thing going on here. Right. And they go to his flat when he had been speaking to both of the policemen saying, listen, I'm Anthony Eastman. I'm not Conrad Fleckman. Verrall seemed to be convinced right away. Carter needed some convincing. But the two of them said, we can't just drop this. We have to investigate thoroughly and make sure you really are who you're saying you are, which right. you know would involve looking through your papers and just getting a fuller view of the situation. And it was Anthony Eastman who said, well, could Carter do that since he's kind of a jerk? and I'd rather chat with you. And you have some whiskey. Right. And so Verrall, in the meanwhile, is um, finally convinced by Anthony to give up the details of the case because basically Anthony is like, listen, you tried to erroneously arrest me. I'm somehow involved with this. What harm would it do anyway to let me know what you're actually after? I'm really curious. And Verrall's finally like, okay, okay. So he begins to tell him a story of immigration and murder and intrigue because years ago, a Spaniard named Fernando Ferraz came to London with his wife and his young daughter, and without much of anything, they were forced to sell their belongings. But the one thing they refused to sell was the shawl of a thousand flowers. It's a Spanish shawl. And even though they've sold all these other things to Anna Rosenberg, she became relentless, basically, about harassing them for this shawl and every single time they refuse. So it gets complicated after that, but items have been stolen from her shop, etc. But finally, Fernando is murdered. Oh boy, this is getting serious. Very serious. So not long ago... 
his daughter, Carmen, this is the murdered man's daughter, she had been sent to a nunnery in France because, of course, we're in that sort of a story. Mm -hmm. And she moves back from the nunnery to London to confront Anna Rosenberg and threaten her over the shawl. She wants that shawl back. It's very important to her. And shortly thereafter, Carmen's friend, Conrad Fleckman, was seen going to Anna's home where he spent a considerable period of time apparently also threatening Anna. Subsequently thereafter, a letter is found that has Fleckman's address on it after Anna has not been seen for a little while. And sure enough, they go to Fleckman's rooms and Anna's body is there, stabbed through the heart. And underneath her was not, not as Anthony immediately wants it to be, the shawl of a thousand flowers, but um, according to Verrall, something quote-unquote far more gruesome than that. Something that explained the mystery of the shawl of a thousand flowers. And what's that, Kemper? Uh, 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 You can't leave us hanging at that point. You know, I can only do what the story does, which is to leave us hanging. Yeah, because what's been happening here is that Anthony Eastman knew that Carter was actually rifling through his things while Verrall has been telling this story. Mm -hmm. And Verrall cuts off because he's called out of the room by that pesky Carter. And that is where we are at the end of the world as it appears to be, because it seems that things are wrapping up. And this is just a really good story, a much better story than Anthony Eastman himself would have been able to write. And he strides into his front room moments after to figure out where that cliffhanger leads to. Right. And we're now in the world as it actually is because his place has been ransacked. Uh, yep. <laughs> he has... Totally he has robbed. Of, yeah, he has a number of antiques. They have been stolen. His yeah, doorman... Despite, despite who, his minimum income, he apparently has exceptionally good taste. So, yeah, I thought, I thought that was a little bit of a cheat because the way he's presented in the beginning of the story... I immediately thought he was pretty poor. It's not really until the antiques have been stolen that we're told he has all these antiques, right? Right. But I can imagine, I know people who collect various tchotchkes and are like really, really good at eyeing something. I have a very good friend who I would shout her out, but she does not listen to the podcast. She is my oldest friend. She has, it's almost crazy. It's like a radar sense. If you go to like an antique store or an auction with her, she can find the thing that has been undervalued with laser precision. It's almost eerie. So, you know, (laughs) there are people like that. So I can actually imagine that he might have had a little collection of something quite valuable. No, it's true. And that's a quibble anyway. It's not a real problem. So we find out that he has these valuable items stolen. And earlier on, as he was bringing the two policemen into his flat, he specifically introduced them to his doorman as a way of also proving that he is who he says he is. And he asked his doorman, how long have I lived here? And it had been a number of years. So the doorman, thinking that these men were acquaintances, actually helped them pack up his things. (laughs) Which I love that detail. (laughs) Yeah, which is really fun. While Anthony, he had a Scheherazade pulled on him. Yeah, absolutely he did. (laughs) Because he was listening to a story and so entranced he didn't realize what was going on right under his nose, i.e. he was getting robbed, burgled. Right. Yep. Oops. (laughs) Uh, Whoopsies. He is almost bemused. 
to the doorman because he's like, well, I guess I can't blame you. I see entirely what you did. Um, (laughs) Whoops. Bad on me. And so he calls the real Scotland Yard, who I love the note that the real Scotland Yard inspector is much less interesting and more annoying to talk to. And he makes a note that it's just another sign that art is um, better than reality. Yeah. And um, the Scotland Yard inspector tells him that this was exactly out of the playbook of the Patterson gang and that the girl isn't even from Spain. No, no. Kelleror, she's from Hampstead. I think she might be Maggie Sayers, a.k.a. Madeline de Sarah. Oh, she does seem very much of the Madeline de Sarah playbook. My conspiracy theory is that Parker Pine has gone rogue and he's actually behind this whole thing. Oh, it's a very, you know, it's a very Parker Pine because the effort. Isn't it? The Patterson, yeah, of course it is. Because the effort the Patterson gang had to make to pull off this robbery is really pretty fantastic. With a P, Parker Pine, Patterson, I think we're being given a clue here. I, you know us. what? I am super, super into this conspiracy theory, Kemper. Sometimes I don't agree with your theories. But this one, I am fully sold on. (laughs) He's really probably never going to get his antiques back, but he does get a package from that glass door, which is his set of liqueur glasses with this little artificial flower at the bottom of one of the glasses. And he remembers back to what Carmen, using air quotes here, said to him when they were parting, which was, I do like you. Yes, I do like you. You will remember that whatever happens, won't you? And he wonders in his perhaps somewhat arrogant way (laughs) whether or not she actually did like him because apparently he's that irresistible. I guess so. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I think she's just not that into you and she just wanted your money. She just wanted your antiques. All right. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. He's just not that into you. She's probably like involved with one of the other guys in the Patterson gag. <laughs> but Catherine, there's an extra little button. What does well, Anthony you know what? get out of this? He might have been robbed. He might have been tricked by a beautiful woman. But you know what he gets? He gets over his writer's block by putting a new page into the typewriter that is titled The Shawl of a Thousand Flowers. <sighs> So maybe, maybe if we got to read his story, we would find out what was actually under the body. The funny thing is that Christie's sort of doing a double layer of the same thing, which is making fun of stories like that because right. Anthony well, Eastman is a, a MacGu- well, it's a MacGuffin. The Shell of a Thousand Flowers is a huge MacGuffin, right? Right. It was used as a MacGuffin to string him along, and those are the ridiculous, silly kinds of stories that. He writes. So she's sending up those stories both directly and indirectly, both within the stories that her character writes and the story she's writing about her character, which is clever. It's it's very similar to what Austin did in Northanger Abbey, making fun of the gothic romance genre. When I have, I will always have a soft spot for Northanger Abbey. I have a soft spot for Northanger Abbey and even the books that it's parodying. I have oh, read like Anne, my fair Ra- sh- Anne Radcliffe. And I have like- read my fair share of Anne Radcliffe and Matthew Lewis and Horace Walpole. I enjoy those mainly 18th century gothic Gothic romances. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, the gothic romance genre. The only other thing I want to point out, 
about this story. I, I mentioned that line being the only one that I underlined, but I had a little bracket in the margin here for a quote that appears in the story. At one point, Anthony says, tomorrow I may be myself with yesterday's 10,000 years. And it says quoted Anthony. So we know that this is a quote and it's in italics. And on an initial reading, its meaning was a little unclear to me, quite honestly. But I believe what he's saying there by means of that quote is, let's not focus on either tomorrow or yesterday, but today, the present moment, because this is when he is cajoling Inspector Verrall in telling him the story of Anna Rosenberg. The inspector says, well, you'll read about it in the papers tomorrow. And Anthony responds with the quote. I had no idea what that was a quote from. And it actually took me two Googles to figure it out. So even though it still only took 15 seconds, it was a little harder than just putting it into Google and getting it in under one second. I was just interested to see what it was. Apparently there was this English translation of a Persian poet, and he's actually known as the astronomer poet of Persia, Omar Khayyam, Mm -hmm. uh, in the 11th and 12th century in Iran. And this man, Edward Fitzgerald, translated it in the 19th century, and it became just wildly popular later in the 19th century, mainly because it was admired by the pre-Raphaelite movement. What I like about some of these short stories of Christie, they're all earlier because they're all in the 20s and 30s, is that we get these little glimmers of early 20th century popular culture that are just totally lost otherwise. And I think that quote was by no means as random when the short story is written and people probably would have realized, oh, right, yeah, that's from the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just thought it was interesting to point out where that was coming from for anyone who may have been mystified as I was by the quotation. Well, uh, we always appreciate some trivia in these. I think her use of references, especially in early Christie, is always interesting. And it always shows that Christie was extremely well-read. That's not something that jives with her reputation that people like to put on her as someone who was perhaps not worldly, but she was very well-read and is making constant references, both high and low, throughout her works in the short stories and the novels. So I think it's always interesting just to point them out and see what she liked to read. There's definitely a lot of Dickens and Thackeray, but also some other stuff like this. Well, it's a lot of, it's interesting that her taste often seems to cut off around 1900. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, she's certainly not, other than when she makes contemporary references to other mystery writers, to her, you know, to her fellow mystery writers. We're not getting a lot of like Bloomsbury group thrown in No, you know, no, we're certainly not. (laughs) Yeah. I have a feeling that the modernist movement was not totally her thing (laughs) probably not seems unlikely you know what we're underestimating her though maybe she was a big joyce fan we don't know but we of course do know that modernist luminary t.s Eliot was a fan of hers well you know i think that we can have an interesting conversation about what she thinks about the bloomsbury-esque people of the world when we get to our next book this is true Perfect segue into the end of this episode, because I believe we are done with Mm -hmm. Mr. Anthony Eastwood's adventure. Join us next week for another short story. But first, since we are so excited about it, as Catherine did mention, our next novel is 
Five Little Pigs. It is. Our very next episode will be a short story from the Mr. Parker Pine collection. Oh, the case, <laughs> the case of the rich woman. In the meantime, you can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find Catherine on Twitter at Robcat. We are on Facebook. Our Facebook page is all about Agatha. Our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. Please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.